and we're rocking. Perfect. So, um, so Patrick, tell us a wee bit about yourself. Right, I'll, I'll probably start the way I start my training sessions actually because I tend to kind of give the headlines of kind of the last 10 years or so of my life kind of that got me to work where I'm working now. Yes. Um, so I was, before I worked in Aware, um, a teacher, a secondary school teacher for five years, um, which was, in my head was always always the plan. I was going to be a teacher from from the moment I thought of something that I was going to be. Um, and that was fantastic, but probably for my mental health not so fantastic, which was interesting and really difficult in a lot of ways because when you have such a fixed plan in your head, like this is what I'm going to do, yes. I'm going to love doing it. And when I, I started and I was training, I did love it, um, but probably then didn't realise just how much of an effect and impact it was having on, on my mood, my mental health. Um, which was all kind of starting then, I suppose, giving interest in where I've ended up now. Um, before that, I had a completely different life and career. I lived out in the Middle East in Dubai and I was an air steward, which happened by accident, but kind of <laughs> a happy accident. Um, I kind of thought before I started my teaching, it would take a year out. That turned into four years and loved every second of it. So it was actually a, a big push for me to actually move from that and go and take the, the step into teaching. Um, outside of work, the stuff that I'm most passionate about is is training, exercise, of anything at all. Basically, that that challenges me and excites me and pushes me. And probably the the way I've got that is through circus, um, which is something I found about six years ago. Mm-hmm. Again, by happy accident and coincidence, I went along with a friend who wanted to try something new. I was like, sure, right, I'll go with you. Yeah. She ended up hating it. I loved it, and six years later, um, I've found myself as an aerial acrobat and um, doing acrobatics with, with a couple of partners as well. That's amazing. Something I look forward to every week. But then all that kind of combination, um, it's all stuff that sounds like very very good and fun, and in a lot of ways I was, I was very successful in my career and painted the picture of a very kind of happy and successful and contented life around that as well. Mm-hmm. But behind it all actually for those 10 years of my life I was suffering um, from depression the whole way through without knowing it uh, because I didn't connect the picture in my head of somebody with depression was somebody who wasn't motivated wasn't really taking much care didn't have any kind of energy or drive whereas I had hobbies coming out of my ears good career social life was great good friends good family but depression for me was more like nodding my head in all the right places and ticking all these boxes that I thought I had to tick to be to be liked, to be loved, to be successful, to be uh, attractive to people, just to be interesting or valid in any way. Because there was none of those things that I was kind of believing or telling myself. So when it came round to then, um, when I left teaching, uh, I worked for a charity organisation before I worked for Aware. Mm-hmm. And um, after a year, it was being made redundant. And this job came up. I saw and kind of sparked my interest, probably because of my own personal reasons. At that yes. stage, I had a, an understanding of my own kind of um, illness with depression. So one part of it was necessity, I needed a job. Then the other part was, okay, this is something that will probably really interest me. And um, I've ended up working for Aware, and I've been with Aware now for nearly three years. And when I went in to Aware, I probably would have described myself as being well, 
and really well into like my recovery um, from a point where I would go to bed at night and just just hope in some way that I didn't have to wake up the next morning because I was exhausted, mm. exhausted chasing whatever I was chasing or felt I had to do. But then when I started doing the work that I do now and training in the work that I do, I just remember sitting shadowing a, one of my trainers who was kind of delivering one of our programs um, that I hadn't seen at all. And they were going through this, this little concept called a vicious circle and showing how everything we think can affect every aspect of your well-being, your happiness, your contentment. So they, some of these thoughts, how they affect how you feel emotionally, how that affects your behaviour and your physical body. And I was just sitting there kind of in shock. I'm like, why has nobody ever told me this before? Mm-hmm. This, this couldn't be this simple that you're telling me that I have some control over some of this rubbish that goes through my head sometimes. You know, some of these, these thoughts and these things that have been there for a long time that have made me feel really rubbish sometimes. And the fact that there's actually some control over that was amazing to me. Yes. So from that point onwards, I was sold. And that's, that's been me ever since for where I'll talk to anybody that will listen. Anybody who doesn't choose to listen, I'll still try and talk to them. Um, yeah, and try and, try and give that little bit of insight, both from my personal experience um, and kind of try and connect that then to, to the people I meet and the people we work with. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Now, tell us a wee bit about Aware NA. So Aware's been going now since 1996. Mm-hmm. So, um, ironically, with the name Aware, not everybody has been Aware. We were formerly called Aware Defeat Depression. Um, and really it is this, this idea of, you know, being aware within yourself of... of how you feel, how you can look after yourself, how different situations and different aspects of your life will impact on your mental health and your mood. And we focus in on supporting people suffering from depression um, and bipolar as a form of depression. But really, anybody who comes to our door, who phones us, contacts us in any way, if it's something that we aren't kind of specifically skilled or knowledgeable in um, helping them with, we'll find the person who, who can help them. Because mm-hmm. what we find is people become massively frustrated. The, you know, the public sector in terms of kind of the statutory health sector and the supports that are there, they're amazing, but they're under so much pressure that people can find, they get to this point in their illness where they've had enough, they're frustrated, but they want to recover. They're, they, they're ready to do it. They're, they just want to turn that corner and make a change. But they want to do it now. Yes. Like us all, you know. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed with depression, um, and the, the doctor suggested taking medication, I said, right, listen, I, I'll accept that's grand. You know, I want to do something to, to make a change. How long do I have to be on it for? And he said, well, we'll start with six months. And I nearly slid off my chair. I'm like, yeah. what do you mean six months? I want to feel better now. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've, I've made this decision. Like, I want to do something. And he said, Patrick, it's like putting on weight. If you've put on weight over a couple of years, you know, that, that didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And it's great that you want to make the decision then to lose that weight and get fit yes. and get healthy. But as much as you want that, you know, to lose two stone by tomorrow, it's not disappearing. You know, it's a gradual process. So that's what people find that frustrating then when they kind of go maybe to the GP 
or they're knocking a door for help or support and they're told that's great but it'll be a three month waiting list before you can get access to counselling, CBT, um, whatever kind of specific help or support they need. So what Aware does is try and bridge that gap um, and we do it in one of two main big ways. Um, one is through support services. We have a network of 25 support groups mm-hmm. that run all across Northern Ireland. We basically try and make it that there's there's access to support on everybody's doorstep or close enough that they can access it. Because people, when they're ill as well, become very socially isolated mm-hmm. and um, debilitated as well. So we try and make it accessible. And the support group really... People have a very stereotypical view of what a support group looks like. And it maybe isn't you know, all that different. People do come into a room and they, they do sit in a circle. And, <laughs> but it's more come into the room, sit, have a cup of tea or coffee and you know, grab a biscuit and sit down. And you can just kind of be there kind of in the moment with that group of people and just listen to what they have to say. Because sometimes it's just nice to sit in that moment and hear somebody saying... This is how I've been feeling, you know, actually even getting here today was really difficult. You know, I've really built myself up all day just to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. I felt scared, I felt anxious, and I'm afraid of bursting into tears. That's the thing that people say to us the most, they're afraid of crying. Mm-hmm. We're saying, why would that be, you know, unnatural to cry? Yes. You know, you're, you've had a really difficult time, you're going through what is a really diff- difficult experience. You, you have the right to actually, you know, express that emotion. Um, so just to actually feel that this isn't just me mm-hmm. and there's actually other people and do you know what, it's not even about it being me or somebody else suffering in the same way, it's about recognising this isn't me it's an illness, I'm suffering from an illness and that's what's having an effect on me it's not just that that's the kind of person I am because mm-hmm. that's frustrating for people, I, I used to feel the same way I thought that everybody else was different to me or I was different to everybody else. Everybody else had it under control. Yes. They knew what they were doing, they were all happy, you know, they were doing the same things that I was doing, but they were they seemed to get all this enjoyment out of it that I didn't. I was kind of faking it. I was like faking, you know, the happiness really behind it. I just didn't feel there was that energy or drive that everybody else seemed to have. Um, and that's what then people can experience. They can be surrounded by people all day long. Never be alone, mm-hmm. but be terribly lonely. Yes. Because they feel, I'm the only person going through this. So the support groups are really there just to kind of give people the hand back up the need when they've just felt they've been kind of either pushed down or they've fallen down. And they just need something um, as an anchor to get them through their week or their day. Um, and it's something that people then you know, in a strange way, start to look forward to mm-hmm. uh, because it's a, it becomes a fantastic kind of cohesive group that are there then to support one another. They're all led by two trained facilitators, but it becomes the group that are the support network mm-hmm. that share the advice. And, you know, it's not about saying, um, you know, giving advice and tips on medication. You know, we, we avoid stuff like that completely. There's a contract for every kind of group about things that are appropriate to talk about or not because everybody's kind of treatment pathway and kind of recovery journey is different but it's about the things that other people sometimes can recognise and spot in you that you can't Yes. so you know if somebody's really kind of been harsh themselves, beating themselves up 
sometimes it's just easier for an outsider to kind of see the wood for the trees and recognise, you know, all these great things you're able to, to do or what you're able to contribute, say, to the group mm-hmm. when you're saying to yourself, oh, but I've nothing to, to give. I, I don't trust myself to take my own advice. Where somebody else can say, but you gave me that piece of advice last week and I went away and it was, it really helped me. So why wouldn't you trust, you know, that same advice for yourself? Yeah. So that's what we try and do with the support groups and um, the way that a lot of the members have described them is like a, a massive group hug, basically. <laughs> uh, you know, that's how you, the kind of feeling people get from going away from it. And I was saying there about this idea of anchors in your week. It's really, we feel it's really important that your week just doesn't become this expanse either of, it can go one or two ways, either nothing, this big empty week that seems very long, kind of very hollow, very empty, or a week that's just made up of an endless list of chores. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. To the point where you no longer remember why you feel you have to do it, but you certainly recognise that you're probably not doing it for yourself. (laughs) It becomes, a lot of times, for other people. Because that's, again, slightly feeding you and that validation that, yeah, I'm doing a good job because somebody's told me that. Mm -hmm. So I feel I have to say yes to everything else I've asked because that would give me a little boost as well when when I get that kind of feedback that, oh, brilliant, thanks for doing that, Patrick. Um, You know, it just kind of gives you a sense of being that maybe you don't feel already. Um, And this idea that, for us, knowledge is power. And we try and feed this to our support groups. And then the other big chunk of work that we do, which is education and training. Uh, And that's the work that, that I do specifically. So we work with people both to raise awareness of mental health, um, how our mental health is impacted and affected, and how we can um, kind of control and recognise when our thoughts become more unhelpful and unrealistic. And once you start to recognise that, you can start to turn it around. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say mental health awareness, so that one of our courses is called Mood Matters, and it's a two-hour course in which we're trying to raise awareness of mental health issues. But by the very nature, when I say knowledge is power, you can't come away from that without having learnt skills and tools to look after your mental health. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to recognise those kind of signs and symptoms of when things are kind of maybe just not working the way they should be or don't feel the way you normally feel, um, and you're able to kind of model those those kind of good behaviours and learn how to kind of control that you're able to really easily spot it in other people as well mm-hmm. so automatically you become um, a support network for the people around you and people will talk a lot about you know this idea when you ask somebody how they are and you know they're not okay yeah. but they say I'm fine oh, I'm <clears> fine <throat> and I know myself if somebody said to me, especially when it comes to kind of what's going through her head, if somebody asked me what I was thinking, I don't know how I'd answer the question. <laughs> You'd be there for a week? Yeah, because there's so many thoughts going through my head at any one time. And I'd probably go through this bit of a filtering process. I'd, I'd first of all filter out all the thoughts in my head that might make me sound completely crazy. Because they're definitely there. You know, because so, so many of our thoughts come from our subconscious mind. Yes. It's like daydream. Like, where did that, that <laughs> come from? Yeah. So get rid of all those. And then I'll probably start reading the situation a bit as well in the context. Why is this person asking me what I'm thinking? 
Do they think I'm mad? Do they, they think is, is it my boss? Do they think I can't cope? Well, I want to be seen to be able to cope and... Right, I'll get rid of all those thoughts that say, no, I can't do this. And what you're left with is this really sanitised version that says, yeah, I'm fine. It's like the day I went to a spin class and um, the instructor's, um, he was playing his music off his laptop and the laptop died. 28 people in the room and he said, does anybody have any music on their phone? No. No. Not one person. No, Seriously? don't have music on my phone. No. Of course everybody had music on their phone. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wanted to be judged on their, you know... On their music taste. Their taste yeah. and obviously, you know, what, what that would say about them and what they were kind of then projecting to the outside world. So of course I said, yes, listen... You know, here's mine. And I would give him a playlist. But I did, before I give it to him, go through and slightly edit the playlist. <laughs> took out all the Whitney Houston, took out all the all the show tunes. Not good like, tunes, though. So, <laughs> I was like, so this is this is the version of me I'm allowing you ah, yes, yes, of to kind of, you know, access and see. And that's what I'm, I'm happy enough to project. Um, and that's okay. You know, we're all a bit self-edited. But it's recognising then... At what point do you then open up that up a bit mm-hmm. and allow people to say or to hear actually what's going on? But it's made easier when somebody asks you a better question, I suppose, rather than like, how are you? Because that's a really easy question to answer with. I'm fine or yeah, I'm grand. So what we kind of, what we encourage people to do when they're especially trying to support somebody else or they recognise that somebody else is having a hard time is label what they can see. Um, so if I notice somebody's behaving in a different way than they usually do, so I'm like, oh, Lee, I've noticed, you know, you're just not your yourself, or you've been, you look tired, um, or you haven't been coming for lunch when, you know, I usually see you at lunch every day. Is everything okay? That kind of opens up a conversation for people. Yes. Because then it's easier for me to say, oh, I'm looking tired, I haven't been sleeping, I've been stressed and work, I've got a lot on, or... Um, haven't been coming to lunch. Yeah, just, just don't really have the energy to have a conversation. Just kind of not, you know, not in good form. Or you might still get the "I'm fine" answer, but it still opens up that conversation, opens up the potential for it, and it gives somebody the the little reminder in their head that oh, somebody asked me, or somebody cared, or somebody actually somebody noticed, somebody gets it. Mm. Yeah, and it it maybe isn't just me and and. Maybe I can talk about that. So that's again back to that whole idea that that knowledge is power. That we're so good at with our physical health. Fantastic. So I know that, you know, when I eat too much of the wrong stuff, I'm going to feel rubbish. I'm going to put on weight. I'm not going to feel good about myself. That'll affect my self esteem. Mm-hmm. Right, what do I do? I stop eating rubbish and I maybe focus a bit more on my training. But with mental health, people seem to. I think it's something that would kind of write itself or fix itself. So then, I haven't been feeling great. That's been a couple of weeks now. Well, sure, I'll leave it another week or so. And I hope it kind of gets better by itself. Of course, you know, your brain's, you know, and your mind is so powerful. So if we're thinking we're putting all this attention into our physical body, our brain and our mind is helping to control that. So it's even more important, in my view. And when it comes to, you know, again, that big focus on physicality, we're so obsessed with, you know, how we look, how we feel physically, but I could be the fittest person, I could be the most successful, the most attractive, the wealthiest, 
that if I don't feel at the end of the day when I sit down in the house on my own any sense of kind of contentment with that or happiness then all that other stuff actually starts to mean very little yes and people talk a lot about happiness as you know I'm kind of striving to be happy and this is the big goal but in my mind happiness if, if I felt happy all the time if I was constantly trying to be happy I'd be exhausted by the end of the day I'd be it comes the norm then so there's no there's no happy no there's no yes there's no kind of peaks and troughs it's all just, you have to feel you know you have to feel sad sometimes to feel happy you yeah, know it's yeah and that's where I, I kind of encourage people with that to look more towards contentment contentment's so much more sustainable mm-hmm. as, a, as a feeling as an emotion as a kind of a just a state of being when I sit on the sofa at the end of the day even though it's been a really crap day and if I can kind of sit there and feel like do I'm alright I scrapped tomorrow will be a better day because I've still got all this other stuff that you know around me that's that, that means more kind of gives me that sense that um, I'm an interesting person I'm talented I'm attractive or I just I feel good if I've got that from more than just one aspect of my life then that gives that you know sense of resilience mm-hmm. I could bounce back from that rubbish day because I've got more around me than just you know say Patrick is somebody who does a job you know that I've maybe just focused all my time and energy on um, so yes turn it like that's a very long story no, that's, no that's brilliant. what could have been a short story but nope. our education and training kind of side of things it looks like a few different um, ways so we've got our, our mood matters our awareness mm-hmm. which really is aimed at anybody with a brain <laughs> you know we, we're not saying this is something that you have to be suffering from poor mental health or massively stressed out or depressed to, to come along and you know hear about this or learn these skills and tools we'd actually say learn it before anything kind of you know goes wrong or um, your kind of mood becomes affected but then we have courses that are designed for people who have got into a bit of a rut or a kind of a hard time. Um, so we work with people for six weeks in a course called Living Life to the Full. It's all based on CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy concepts, which always sounds really convoluted <laughs> and more complicated than it really is. It's just the idea that this niggling little thought that's in my head that voice that we all have kind of talking to ourselves is saying to me something like, I'm not good enough. That thought, then, you know, in all different situations in my life, it starts to crop up and keeps on coming up and coming up. And I hear that thought when I go into that, you know, new situation. I go to the gym, I go into that class that I've never been to the first time. Oh, I'm not good enough. You know, everybody else, everybody else has been here before, they're all fitter than me. So that makes me feel emotionally really self-conscious and nervous and anxious and that's making me already feel bad. That's not how I want to feel. So my behaviour starts to change and I maybe push myself to the back of the room or I'm actually so focused on what's going through my head that I'm making mistakes because I haven't listened to what's really going on. So I'm not really in the moment or enjoying it. And physically my heart's pounding. So this like exercise I'm supposed to do, I'm struggling because I'm out of breath. I'm already kind of in a heightened kind of state of panic. So what do I do? I don't go back, because that made me feel bad. So I blame the class, I blame the situation. I'm like, that class was awful. When really, it was that thought in my head, I'm not good enough. 
that's what caused, you know, that's what started that vicious circle turning. So for six weeks we work on that and we break that down and we we take in each individual kind of part and I like look at the thoughts, you know, where where's that come from? How can we start to not just stop it? Because that would be very simple if I if I said to anybody, okay, we just stop thinking like that. <laughs> well that'd be ideal. But get it, over you know, it. Yeah. Just cheer up. <laughs> so what we try and teach is kind of little methods to not just make the thought go away but to turn the volume down in the thought because it's going to be there mm. you know we have those thoughts that interrupt sometimes but finding a way to turn the volume down so it's quiet enough that it's not actually interfering with my my kind of happiness of, of whatever I'm doing and we look at them behaviour as well things that we've maybe stopped doing over time that we used to love doing but then our mood got low and we didn't feel like we had the energy because we fell into this this vicious circle and sometimes the, the less you do the worse you feel mm-hmm. and then the worse you feel the less you do and you're stuck I know if I go and I meet my friends for coffee or I go to, to my circus class that I always used to love and I'll probably feel a bit better but I just don't feel like I've just got the energy the problem. or the drive yeah mm-hmm. so it's getting out of that break in that circle and we look at um you know, building self-esteem and self-confidence because really at the root of everything if your kind of core beliefs what you're saying to yourself inside is that I'm okay you know I've got this you know I recognize all the things about me that I like that I that I love that I kind of value and that I'm glad that other people maybe see me as well and we try and really focus in on that because people when they start to become unwell they start to forget that. They're not telling themselves the good things anymore. That inner kind of voice is no longer being supportive or helpful or positive or reminding you of the things that you've done before that you did really well, that you were good at. It's starting to kind of just like mentally beat you up a bit. Like, why did you do that? Or sure, you can't do that because remember the time you tried before and you, you couldn't do it, mm-hmm. so why try now? Yes. So it's about retraining that. Um, that kind of core belief so it's not holding you back and the kind of the example I always give of that um, throughout my adult life I've always said in any situation that involves numbers oh, I can't do maths <laughs> I, I put it out there first no no I can't do that so then there's no risk and there's no possible disappointment for me there's no failure involved because I've already told people I can't do that so I can't let myself or anybody else down um, when I started training in CrossFit it was like a mathematical nightmare because <laughs> everything involved numbers. Okay, you're working at 72.5% of your one rep max. I'm like, what does this even mean? Somebody give me a calculator. I just want somebody to tell me, right, that's the number. So I had to start actually really questioning that at one stage. Like, why am I still saying that? I'm now 34. Where did that idea that I can't do maths come from? Yes, I find maths difficult. But look at it, like looking at the reality and the evidence. I've got a mortgage, I managed to pay my bills, um, you know, I've got through my life, I work freelance, I, I do my own accounts, maybe quite poorly, but <laughs> I do them, you know, nobody's come knocking on my door yet. So really that idea came from something that happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I remember being in my first year um, maths class in school, and we'd just done our Christmas exams and we got our results back. And the teacher had read out the results, and he read out 
the top mark in the class and who got it, and the bottom mark in the class and who got it. I was not the top of the class, <laughs> so I remember, and what I remember more is the feeling. I probably don't remember much else that happened around it, but I remember how I felt at the time. I felt embarrassed, and I still remember I got 35%. I can't remember anything else that happened 22 years ago, but I remember that. You have to blame that teacher for that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, you, you feel so self-conscious. And, <sighs> so I stopped taking the chances. Mm. I didn't make an effort. Yes. Because I didn't have the skills and the resilience at that time then to say, right, oh, I'm really disappointed about that, so I'll work really hard. And if, if I still don't do well, I can bounce back from that. So I, I didn't want to take that chance. So I just stopped trying. I pulled back. I used to tear pages out of my book when I couldn't do the homework because I had this old kind of shabby textbook. Mm-hmm. So then, as I said, there was no real risk for me. And then throughout my life, I would still put that out there first. Well, I can't do this, so don't be disappointed in me without really looking at the evidence. So it turned out I'd just been practising that thought in my mm-hmm. head for a really long time to the point where then I believed it. It was the easy place for my kind of head to default to, to kind of keep me safe mm-hmm. in a situation that I felt uncomfortable. So what we really try and do is kind of retrain that. Because so much of kind of our experience in adult life comes from like a recall of things that have yes. happened, you know, when we're younger. And it might not even be our own recall of our own kind of experiences. It might be our recall of how somebody else has reacted. Mm-hmm to something, you know, we've walked down the street with our parents as a child and a dog's come up the street and, you know, the person you're with kind of jumps out of their skin. So the next time you kind of experience that situation, you recall that and, okay, there's obviously something to be worried about here. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, that's, that's not real. Um, so as much as we can, in six weeks, you know, in kind of a, a two-hour kind of um, session per week, we try and give those tools for people to go away and then do a bit of work themselves in between times and try and just kind of tease that out a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of we encourage people really to to kind of jot things down and write things down um, but in a very slow and simple way um, the big thing we, we always try and kind of encourage is to do it slowly in little bits don't set yourself up for failure because that would be the, the easy thing for people to do because if they're already kind of feeling that they've, they've failed or already frustrated themselves, right, I'll go headlong into this and I'll try and get it all, you know, I'll try and do it now, um, but it probably won't work. And if it doesn't work, sure, who cares? Because, you know, I knew it was going to fail anyway, mm-hmm. but I tried. So not setting yourself up for failure, just taking one little part of something that's that's been a bigger kind of annoyance in your life. Um, so for me, Something really simple. I really pulled away from my family more than anybody, probably. Um, not even from friends, because I suppose even the friends that I had at the time weren't people that really I maybe wanted to be around, but they were easy to be around. It was kind of described as you know, this idea of people being trainers and radiators. <laughs> I surrounded myself with trainers because there was no risk involved in them. They weren't going to pull me up on how I was behaving Um, whereas my true friends would have done and my family would have done so I really pulled away from them because I didn't want to or I couldn't acknowledge what was going on I didn't really understand it 
So with my family, when I started to kind of recover and um, starting to build things back up, one of my little steps when I did this course was just to phone my mum. And that doesn't sound like a big thing, such as just, you know, a phone call, but it would have been something I would have been very easily able to kind of um, make an excuse not to do. Oh, I'm busy, I didn't get a chance. Imagine we're busy. Yeah. So, busy doing what? Busy doing anything that actually made me feel good? Probably not. So then I factored that in, I just made it, I broke it down really, really kind of into small little pieces to try and unblock any excuses that I could possibly make to not do it. So, right, okay, where am I phone her? Well, when I'm going home from the gym, I'm, I'm just in the car, like, you know, it's, um, I don't have anything else to do. I'll ring her then. And then I can't escape, you know, there's no way out of that, there's no other distractions. So then I started to kind of build that in, maybe just, you know, once a week on the way home from doing late spin class, I'll give her a ring. And then that became more regular, and that was maybe um, every night coming home from the gym, to the point where then I'd kind of tied somebody else into that bargain then. If I didn't phone my mum at that time, then she was then wondering, oh, why hasn't he phoned? So she'd phone me. So then somebody else was invested, and my excuses were then kind of being cut away because if I wasn't kind of delivered on my side of the bargain, somebody else was going to then pull me up on that. Which was really good for me because if I wasn't phoning, it's probably because I did feel bad. So then there was somebody on the other end of the phone contacting me and saying, is everything okay? Yes. You know, you're not yourself. Like, I know what you're like. I know what you do now. When you're not feeling good, you pull away. Because then people close start to really recognise those those signs in you. And that's something else we work on as well in living life to the full actually. Um, when some people find temper an issue and you know they become massively frustrated and then all just kind of erupts and bursts out. Um, the last week we actually work on temper and we talk about like our early warning system. These kind of like behaviours or physical signs that we can we start to kind of uh, portray when we're about to lose our rag. And I'd always say, like, I'm not a bad-tempered person. I don't have that kind of big, massive, explosive temper. And when I was a teacher, I could hear these other teachers down in corridors going on these massive kind of shouting fits. I was a bit jealous. <laughs> I'm like, that's a real teacher. Like, you know, that's what I should be doing. And sometimes I try, but I just kind of run out of steam midway through and be like, I don't really care enough yeah, about, it's not you. you know, Whatever I'm shouting about, uh-huh. it doesn't really matter that much. So I would say I'm not bad-tempered, but then if I said that to my parents, they'd probably remind me of the time that I put my foot through the kitchen door because <laughs> my sister was on the other side of it, <laughs> winding me up for some reason. So if I said to them, how do you know when I'm kind of in a bad mood or I'm, I'm about to kind of like lose my temper? And they'd probably be really easily able to kind of pinpoint uh-huh. all my little kind of behaviours or traits. So we encourage people to kind of go and ask somebody, right, what do you do? Because then if you start to recognise that, you can stop that in its tracks. It's like the vicious circle again. How do I stop it before I'm kind of being whirled around in it and I, I feel like I can't, I can't get off, you know? Stop, I want to get off. <laughs> so if you can kind of catch that early, then you're able to find that escape hatch. Okay, my heart starts beating and I start kind of getting really, you know, flustered, okay? sit down, let your kind of physical body kind of chill out and calm down and get your breathing back to normal. Or when 
I, I would have a tendency if I get annoyed, say if somebody's emailed me or you know, and something that's kind of wound me up, I'll be straight on and I'm writing this big rant of an email back and I'm raging. And then now I've kind of found like I, I've sent those emails in the past, and then after a while I'm like, oh, shouldn't have really said that or kind of regret that a wee bit. So now I wait for an hour. I'm like, okay, if the if the email can wait before it's sent, I'll wait and then I go back. And usually now, a good two thirds of it gets deleted. And I'm like, right, just this, this is okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's fine those way escape patches, just so that you don't end up actually making yourself feel bad or any worse than you you really need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and recognizing the emotions that that sometimes take over you, that are just massively wasteful. Of energy for you, like guilt. Guilt is a massively wasteful emotion for a lot of people because generally it's only you that feels the effects of it. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend last night and um, she hasn't been well, and then she said she was she was back at work. Like, Why did you go back to work? She's like, because I was the only person who could do this, you know, specific thing. Like, but what if you weren't there? I'm sure somebody would do it. And she was feeling guilty at the thought of then letting other people down. Like, I'm 100% sure what they're thinking is, I hope you're okay and you'll get better soon. I'm probably so involved in their own day and their own lives that that's not even affecting them. (laughs) The only person that's saying those things is you in your own head. Um, Same as that idea of kind of resentment of other people as well. We can get really wound up by what other people are doing and what we feel they're doing to us or on us, whereas they might not even have a clue how that's making you feel, or that they're even doing anything to annoy you. So you kind of describe that as this this feeling that resentment's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die when it's actually just you that's going to be affected. Um, so yeah, living life for the full kind of tries to break all that stuff down. Um, and the interesting thing about living life to the full after six weeks people have this kind of, I suppose a bit of a feeling of trepidation about then kind of finishing because you do see people going on a journey and you go on a journey with them as well. I've never done one of these courses as a trainer and delivered it and not learned something new about myself, not learned something new about how to deliver the course um, or not learned something new about, about people in general. We're in it together and you feel that by the end of it. But then people don't want to finish, they're kind of, how am I going to do this like without your help? Mm-hmm. And that's the really important part of it, because if you don't have a, a finishing point somewhere, same as a special counselling, it just becomes another coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. You have to rely on something. Yeah. And when you start to lean on something, even exercise, exercise you know, is so fantastically beneficial, but if it becomes excessive and it becomes compulsive um, and obsessive, then it, it just moves on that kind of scale of, that's been really helpful for me to now actually just hold me back. And I'm so consumed by that thing that I, I have to do that. So the benefit of it starts to kind of become diluted because mm-hmm. you forget what you're doing. Yes, yes, of course. But again, at the end of the course, people come back and they do another course, then maybe, you know, do it again. Yes. Because they said, I'd, you know, I'd love to come back and do it again because the first kind of couple of weeks, I was in a really bad place. So now that I'm actually feeling a bit stronger, a bit more in control of, you know, what's going on, 
or just a bit more present and you know I can actually go and be in the room and listen to what you know was being said so they come back and do it again or maybe a year or so later they come back as well or they do um, one of our other courses we, we provide mindfulness training as well and mindfulness as a more as a practice you know obviously than um, any of our other kind of training in terms of raising awareness or building in those those skills it's something that people can do day in day out as a practice to then help in terms of maybe when life is starting to feel rushed or um, those thoughts are starting to kind of kick in again that's building up that anxiety or that panic what's what practical thing can I go and do that actually helps me reduce all those feelings yes. so mindfulness we we do it in a number of kind of guises as well. We do it for members of the public. We do it for professionals in the workplaces. Um, again, basically, anybody who wants or needs that kind of skill or that support, it's there for them. Brilliant. That is fantastic, Patrick. <laughs> thank you very much. I just said thank you. That was brilliant. Nice, nice and cold now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.